0: Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy, but today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert.
1: Good. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. Welcome to Museum Life. Uh, I'm so glad that you have time to join the program today. Uh, Welcome. This is the day that uh, we are expecting two feet of snow uh, up and down the eastern seaboard, two feet even in Washington, D.C., which means that we are all at home, warm, and paralyzed with fear about the snow. But regardless, we will have a great show today. And um, I must say that I am really have been looking forward to this program. Uh, the national Association for Museums Exhibitions, which is a a group of the American Alliance of Museums, publishes a fabulous magazine called Exhibitionist. I recommend it highly, highly to uh, all of us who are interested in uh, museum practice and particularly uh, using exhibitions and programs to communicate with our audiences. And their fall... uh, issue was all focused on creating an inclusive experience, exhibitions, and universal design. And so I thought it would be apt to bring in two colleagues uh, that I respect very much uh, to discuss this topic with us. They also have a very interesting article in uh, the issue of exhibitionists. So we have with us today Janice Majewski, who is the Director of Inclusive cultural and educational projects at the Institute for Human-Centered Design in Boston, Massachusetts. Jan will share, of course, her career trajectory with us in her own words in just a minute. I just want to say that I was so privileged to have an opportunity to work with Jan um, many years ago when I was uh, developing an exhibition in Baltimore, and I learned so much uh, from Jan uh, that has carried over into my practice, and so she has been a, a true mentor and uh, a supporter for many, many years. And the our other guest is someone that uh, some of you may remember. I had Claire Brown on the show. Uh, this summer, we were talking about uh, exhibitions and storytelling. Uh, Claire is an exhibit designer in her own right, and she is also the head of the Masters of Arts in Exhibition Design Program and Associate Professor of Design at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And later in the program, I'll make sure that you all have the uh, contact information for Jan and Claire to follow up, as I'm sure you're going to want to do. But with no further ado, Jan, um, Claire, welcome to the program, and Jan, I'm going to give you the first shot at the question uh, so that everyone can get to know you a little bit better, if you can just share a little bit about your career trajectory, and how you became interested and involved in accessibility and universal design.
2: Thank you, Carol. And uh, one of the very finest parts of my job is working with the extraordinary professionals that I've met in the museums. And you and Claire are amongst the two top. So thank you for letting me talk with Claire to your audience with you today. Um, I started out as an educator. I was an educator of deaf students. And the Smithsonian opened a job opportunity that was in the Office of Elementary and Secondary Education that was to work on making progr- educational programs accessible to students who were deaf. So I made the transition from public school to the museums way back in 1978, and the job grew in scope, not necessarily, unfortunately, in staff, but the job grew in scope to cover accessibility for all people Um, in all programs at the Smithsonian. And then in 1991, the institution started a central program called the Accessibility Program, and I was the founding director of that. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to work on that project because it just really made the Smithsonian very centrally aware of the need for accessible design in everything that all of the museums and the zoo did. I stayed at the Smithsonian until 2001 when I decided it was time to make a little bit of a career shift and moved over to the U.S. Department of Justice in the Disability Rights Section in the Civil Rights Division where I worked on ADA technical assistance and also worked on several enforcement cases where we looked at museums um, and their accessibility. In 2013, I retired from the department and was uh, privileged to be made part of the staff of the Center for Human Centered Design, the Institute for Human Centered Design in Boston. I am still based in D.C. and operate remotely there and work with Valerie Fletcher, who is one of the proponents internationally for universal design.
1: Wow, that's, yeah, that is so interesting, and of course, uh, and we'll, we'll come back to this, your career trajectory really did parallel the uh, adoption of the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act uh, and how that uh, then affected museums, and we will get into how that was really interesting, sort of a Wild West at the time, and, <laughs> and then we'll, we'll find out, you know, are we there yet? But before we do, Claire, uh, as I mentioned, Claire, you've been on the show before, but could you just remind uh, our listeners a little bit about your career trajectory?
3: Sure, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me back on the show, um, and I'm really pleased to be here with Jan, who is a longtime friend and colleague. Um, so my background uh, was originally in cultural anthropology. Um, I also studied theater and I did theater set design. I uh, also was a carpenter for um, a few years. And um, so as I uh, developed in my interests, I moved into the field of museum studies and became an exhibition designer. And my my background in cultural anthropology has always been a, a foundation for me in terms of my design practice, where um, making, creating successful designs for real people um, actually takes precedent over um, aesthetics alone. And, um, and so I guess that, that brings us to considering human factors and accessibility today.
1: Great, great. Thank you very much. And Jen, then just, uh, Claire, to stay with you for uh, for a minute, how then did you and Jan meet?
3: Sure. So when I was in graduate school in Washington, D.C., I was in the Museum Studies program at the George Washington University. And uh, when I was in that program, I undertook two, intern- actually several internships. Um, the first internship uh, was... One with this Smithsonian accessibility program, and in uh, and that's how I met Jan. Um, It was interesting because, uh, as a person interested in design, but in the context of museum studies, it was uh, a little bit difficult to find where you know find my footing and find where an internship might be really um, useful for me. And in talking to my advisor, um, we figured out that accessibility might be an area that would combine my interests in. Cultural anthropology, in terms of working with, you know, humans and human factors, but um, but also looking at design and how exhibitions um, uh, can work the best. And um, so Jan was the head of the accessibility program at the time, and um, she and I had uh, the wonderful opportunity of being able to work together.
1: Very, very interesting. Um you know so jan i so before we go any farther you know we've already i i realize that i've already thrown around some terms that while they're very familiar to many of us in the field they may not be Universally understood. So let's just um, step back a minute, and you know, sometimes I find that we use the the this um, acronym ADA and then universal design almost synonymously, uh, but they but but they're different. And so, could you just help um, help our listeners understand the uh, the definitions?
2: Absolutely, ADA has become the. Catchword or the catchphrase for accessible design. And accessible design actually started way back before in the early, in the late 1960s with the Architectural Barriers Act and then progressed up through Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and um, then to the ADA. Accessible design is designed specifically to make environments accessible to people with disabilities. Universal design actually starts at accessibility. It is uses accessibility as its base, and it is not a style of design. It is a framework for design, and it has been called inclusive design or design for all or lifespan design, and it is really human-centered design of everything with everyone in mind. So it's no longer specifically for people with disabilities, but using that as a baseline, looking at how we can make the world more accessible to everyone.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and so I'm, I'm assuming that the often-cited example being the uh, uh, sidewalk uh, curb cutouts is is an example of universal design.
2: Well, actually, the curb cutout started out as accessible design. That, is desi- that was designed specifically for people who ha- use wheelchairs and to enable them to get off of curbs and into streets and back onto sidewalks. However, universal design began to develop when everyone realized how beneficial those curb ramps are, that people now the ubiquitous roller suitcases, strollers, bicycles, and people who just don't want to to or can't lift their legs to be able to make a six-inch curb all benefit by the ramp. And that's really where universal design came from. It was looking at all that accessibility, how accessibility can be used by everyone, and then finding ways to make that even more flexible and human-centered.
1: Oh, thank you very much for clarifying that for me. Uh, that that is interesting, and I and uh, we will get uh, later in the show. I know you and Claire can share a little bit about you know how how one goes about thinking about this framework and looking at things in in this eye. But, you know, it, it reminds me, Jan, of when I was doing um, work. I was working at the Newark Museum, and the Americans with Disabilities Act came into law in the middle of a uh, a a building project that we were doing. And so the architectural work had already been done, and we were, you know, merrily there were construction people, you know, building away, and then this law that it probably everybody knew about, but it came into law. And so there was, there were numerous discussions about, uh, you know, how, how things might be retrofitted, everything from the entrances of doorways into restrooms and the heights of countertops and things. And it, it reminded at the time my impression And this, again, uh, you, you and Claire can, uh, correct me, my impression was that the law as written was very clear on certain architectural issues, such as I've mentioned, you know, the width of doorways and the height of countertops for buildings, you know, if you're building an office building or even if you're building a museum, but that that those rules were not directly applied to exhibitions. Is that correct? Was that sort of like exhibitions always seem to be this gray area about in terms of following the ADA or was that just the people I was working with at the time?
2: <laughs> well, I think partly the this the ADA standards directly apply to exhibitions if you are looking at width of path of travel, or you're looking at protruding objects, or you're looking at um, changes in level or reach range. Where the standards don't directly apply, there are also... The, it, the, the standards are one part of the regulation of the ADA. Title three of the ADA regulation also includes apart, as one colleague of mine said years ago, some really interesting stuff at the beginning, but (laughs) the really interesting stuff at the beginning is also the regulation and that is where the ADA talks about non-discrimination and equal opportunity for participation and non-segregated programs and effective communication and modifications of practices and Basically, you have to take all of those pieces and figure out how all of that applies to exhibitions. And that's one of the reasons why we at the Smithsonian worked on the Smithsonian Guidelines for Accessible Exhibition Design, because a lot of people, like your colleagues at the Newark Museum and others, didn't realize that there are all these pieces that come together and the ADA is not just a set of architectural standards. And so we tried to pull together all of that information and translate it into exhibition terminology.
1: That. Uh, thank you very much. I think that that gives all of our listeners a, a better framework, and and uh, I would say that the Smithsonian guidelines for accessibility, which are I st- I believe I'm, I access them online, are still some of the best uh, and clearest. Uh, uh, s- Rules, if you will, but but uh, uh, clarifications of how uh, to do certain things that are very very helpful and and so again on behalf of the field, Jan, thank you very much.
2: <laughs> well, it wasn't it wasn't just me by any or even the accessibility program by any sense of the. Um, it The Smithsonian Exhibition Design Departments, every single one of them had representatives who worked with us on the design guidelines because the idea was not to impose guidelines on our designers and stultify their creativity, but to find ways to use this as a creative challenge and a tool and a way to make their exhibitions better.
1: And so, Claire. So you were interning at about this this same time. What was what was your experience? And, uh, you know, when you told the rest of your design colleagues that this was your internship, did they think that this was a great idea, or did they look at you, as, you know, wondering if if you were you know doing something that was sort of a sideline? Yeah. So
3: it, you know, it was interesting. Um, there. As Jan said, um, when the guidelines were being developed, the, um, <clears throat> the Smithsonian um, offices of design across the institution were were involved, and that that is a is a key factor here. The success of being able to implement accessible design requires buy-in from the people who have to do it, and. Um, and so Jan's strategy of bringing in all of these design departments um, and that, that you know people who are going to actually have to practice this was was a very smart one um, my my role as an intern, um, well first of all, there was a little bit of deer in the headlights of course <laughs> on my part. Um, my eyes were being opened to the fact that this was an actual thing that this was a field that this was a challenge that I might have to deal with in my career. That this was something there was a lot of discussion about, and a lot of um, uh, a lot of different opinions about it um, on both sides. And what I found fascinating was that there, there, while designers, like all museum professionals, have the goal of creating successful exhibitions and communicating their content successfully um, with their audiences. Nobody in any practice likes to have constraints put on what they do, and as designers, um, we we are we see our practice as a creative one, which means needing to have a certain amount of freedom in order to find the right answers um, or the right solutions. And um, and so I think there were some people who found the ADA to be an obstacle—not the ADA, excuse me—but guidelines um, guidelines for accessible design to be an obstacle. And what was interesting for me was to be in, to sit in on some of the conversations um, around this and to see what the different uh, perspectives were. So there were some people who immediately recognized that, of course, yes, if we want our exhibitions to be successful, if we want to connect with our audiences in the best way, we need to make some modifications that will benefit everyone. And I, and uh, on, on the other hand, there were some people who viewed these guidelines simply as following a code, you know, sort of like a building code. And in many ways, uh, people who create built environments look to satisfy the code, as in letter of the law, but to put it aside immediately um, and not to focus on, on it any, anymore. And w- what I recognized in sort of just being an attendant uh, in these different meetings and workshops um, was that the most successful exhibitions were going to be the ones that took accessible design not as something just to follow like code, but as something that is integrated into the entire experience. So really making it more of a universal design approach. Um, And so that was... When I, when I left graduate school, that was really strong in my mind and has uh, influenced my design practice um, ever since, is that when we create exhibitions, we create them for all of our audiences, uh, and as such, one of our design challenges is to make sure that they work for all of our audiences, so... Wonderful.
1: That's great. Uh, We're going to take the first of our two breaks. And when we come back, more with Claire and Jan about uh, universal design and exhibitions. And I will be asking the the obvious question are we there yet? Uh, So stay tuned. Uh, There's more to come. Uh, You're listening to Carol Bossert for Museum Life, and we will be back in a moment.
4: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 that's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Mm-hmm.
1: Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossard, and today on Museum Life, I am talking with two fabulous colleagues, Jan Majewski, who is the Director of Inclusive Cultural and Educational Projects at the Institute for Human-Centered Design, and Claire Brown, who is the Head of the Masters of Arts in Exhibition Design Program uh, at uh, the George Washington University here in Washington, D.C., And we are talking about universal designs uh, in exhibitions. Um, Now, and a a lot of this, I am sure, and, and we may talk about this as well, it extends to all museum activities. It could be an exhibition. It could be a classroom experience. It could be a program that happens out on the museum grounds. It is all uh, as Claire so eloquently said right before we, we went on break, that this is designing for everyone to be able to access and have access of, of, of the experience. And I think that that really is the, uh, the the philosophy and the commitment that we have as museums because we are part of the community and we uh, our goal is to be accessible uh, for all. So, um, you know, uh, Jan, you'll have to remind me, the ADA, uh, American uh, with Disability Act, was, came into law fift, uh, 25 years ago?
2: 25 years ago, right.
1: 25 years ago. So we've had 25 years. Uh, the Smithsonian, as Jan said, is developed... Fabulous, fabulous guidelines. Uh, The National Park Service, whom I've worked with a great deal, also has some very useful and helpful uh, uh, design uh, parameters and some suggestions and approaches, as do other organizations as well in our field. So it's been 25 years, Jan. Jan. Ha- are we there yet are all yeah. exhibits and exhibit designers just uh inherently uh, developing exhibitions that uh, uh adhere to the spirit of universal design
2: uh, <laughs>
1: don't, don't take too long you knew i was going to ask this question
2: <laughs> i wish i wish i could say we were but we are not yet there There are many designers who have incorporated pieces of accessibility or assume certain parts that have to be incorporated, just as matter of course, but they are not, as Claire said earlier, looking at the overall exhibition and trying to figure out how to make it maximally available to everyone, and there are certain disability groups that they are just stymied by in many cases. And I actually heard a designer say fairly recently, um, I don't do anything for people who are blind or have low vision because exhibitions are a very visual medium. And so hearing that 25 years after the ADA was passed is disconcerting at best.
1: Oh! Oh! Yes! Yes! Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm I'm speechless. But <laughs> unfortunately, I too, in um, in some of the the circles that I've uh, colleagues that I have, I I guess I'm not surprised. I guess I'm sort I'm still sort of sad. But before we you know, start crying in our our coffees this morning so what Jan what do we as a field or you know maybe you can even raise up some examples of individual museums what do we get right most of the time?
2: I think most of the time people now realize that they have to make pathways that are wide enough and entrances that are wide enough and um, even are aware of mounting height for labels and objects the, it seems that open captioning of videos are something that people is something that people recognize they need to do fairly regularly um, I think after that, things begin to break down a little bit. One of the real leaders right now is the Canadian Museum for Human Rights up in Winnipeg, and they have really taken this on gangbusters. They said, this is a museum on human rights. We have to make sure we address everyone's human rights, and they have done incredible work in terms of apps and access for people who are blind or have low vision and access for people who use American Sign Language or or um, QSL, Quebec, Quebecois Sign Language, LSQ, excuse me. Um, and they have really seen the importance of this as a right to a museum and have worked very hard to implement it. Uh,
1: that's that's very interesting. Um, it, it almost in some ways reminds me of a term that, in some ways, I've, I don't care for anymore educationally, uh, but in this instance, perhaps it's appropriate, and it's layering.
2: hmm: It is very mm-hmm. appropriate, and you want the layering has to occur so that it's all there all the time. It's not a separate special program that is layered on because then I use the term Band-Aid. That is, oh gosh, we didn't even think about this audience. We have to do something. But layering is wonderful. And then as you do in Photoshop, you know, to compress those layers and make it all one is the ideal situation.
1: Claire, uh, so... What, you know, uh, I'm sure you agree with Jan on, on uh, many of these uh, observations, but, but, you know, from your experience, what is it that, uh, say, some of your, your clients or some of the, you know, museums you work with, uh, I know you too uh, work, uh, uh, have worked and work with the Smithsonian, what are the things that, that we get right that seem to be, you know, pardon the pun, universally understood,
3: Yeah, so in the 20-some years that I've been working in museums, there's been a lot of shifts in many areas. And one of them has been the rise in considering audience engagement. Um, And that has been, uh, you know, that's sort of a catchphrase right now in in our field. Um, And so different divisions of museums tackle that in different ways. So I think that, Education departments, design departments, public program departments, um, curatorial departments, uh, social media and outreach departments are all tackling audience engagement. So I think right there we have something to build on. Um, And I think if we can incorporate universal design or just accessibility for all into our Thinking about audience engagement, then we, um, which does happen, I think that that's an area of success and an area of success that we can build on. I think, uh, as a museum field, we really need to start looking at how uh, how the subdivisions of our different departments affect the products that we create, and the fact that we do really have these very siloed divisions between education, curatorial, design, um, public programming, and outreach. Um, I think it works against us in some ways. And I think in order to truly create a universally designed museum experience, then we really need to think about what we do as a holistic thing as opposed to these sort of parts that come together. Um, So... So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's and it's something that you and uh, Jan said uh, before we we went on break, and this I think is just sort of a, a clarification of of that. Is that the the issues, the questions, the research gathering, for instance, needs to all occur at the beginning of a project, uh, mm-hmm. and it needs to include. All of these groups, you know, you've talked about the silos. I mean, I've often felt that in, in the best circumstances, an exhibition design team is the one that creates the uh, cross-communication uh, be, uh, among all the silos because, every, you know, everyone is around the table and uh, it's it's at these early stages that these uh universal design discussions need to occur in my experience that isn't often the case unless there is a you know a universal design advocate on the team and then it becomes you know sort of their problem his uh i mean how what are some ways we can break down that paradigm
2: jan well i think I think you've hit on it exactly, Carol, in that universal design or even just accessible design needs to be considered from the very beginning so that it is integrated and not a problem that is addressed halfway through when things become a negative, you didn't do, therefore, and then changes have to occur. And I think universal design needs to be addressed all the way through the project. So I think having an advocate is essential because so often things change midstream or someone makes one change and then another change happens in a domino effect and you can go from having something very accessible to something that is not accessible at all. Because as Ron Mace, the person who has been called the father of universal design once said, accessibility is in the details and if you lose some of those details you can destroy the accessibility. So I agree with you completely that it needs to be included at the beginning and considered all the way through.
1: Claire, have you had uh some experiences or uh that where the group or at least several a couple people or even one person in the group is uh talking about universal design from the beginning?
3: Sure, absolutely. Um well, one of the things that I've found, and, and I've said this in other contexts, is that um, often the designer and the educators will, will be the ones at the table who, are, um, who will bring up universal design or accessibility. Um, and I think what... Is great is when the the designers and the educators can come, or educators and slash exhibition developers, can come into uh, a project team really as allies, with the common goal of visitor experience being you know being primary, and visitor experience meaning, creating a successfully engaging experience for all visitors, um, and. I have had some really great experiences working with educators and developers to really focus the conversations within project teams on uh, accessibility. We may sometimes we don't use the term accessibility, uh, but we talk extensively about what are all the different avenues for making uh, our what we're creating um, accessible. So we would look at space planning and physical design, but also graphic design and lighting and color choices. And we look at the language that's being used and the level of language. Um, And if we can just start bringing in all of those details with the intention of creating something successful, just generally successful, we pretty much have hit on universal design throughout that process.
1: That uh, that those are some really really good suggestions, and I uh, I have a couple of follow up questions, but I think I'm going to wait uh, until after our break so that we don't lose our train of thought. I wanted to though for all of. Uh, all of the listeners who are, and I know many of the listeners out there are uh, emerging museum professionals. You may be in graduate school right now. You may, you know, all of a sudden realize, as Claire did, what a great internship opportunity. If you're interested further in uh, these issues, I would recommend uh, the uh, uh, the exhibitionist um, issue. Uh, you can get that through the American Alliance of Museums. Also. Um, I hear from a very good source that the next issue of uh, Museum Magazine, published by a, uh, a, AAM, is also going to be on this topic. In fact, we have additional guests next week that will be talking about that. Uh, also, um, Jan um, can be reached at Majewski at IH- design.org Claire can be reached at cb underscore design at gwu gwu edu and I can't recommend uh, high, uh, you know, highly enough that uh, these two professionals among many others are accessible themselves and that too is so very very important uh, so we will uh, take a quick break now when we come back more with uh, Jan and Claire Layer, particularly about how we can teach these uh, skills about looking at uh, universal design with open eyes or new lenses. We will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Stay tuned. <music>
4: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services LLC because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com, reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn, or call her directly at 240-432-7712 stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
0: you're tuned into museum life with carol bossert to reach our program today please call one 866 472 That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I am here today with Jan Majewski and Claire Brown. We have been talking about uh, the the both the philosophy, the intent, and the practice of universal design, specifically today as it uh, relates or is made manifest in exhibitions, which, of course, are I like to say, the museum's front porch. It's it is the place where museums can communicate to their audiences. So sometimes the only way. And so, uh, what we what we do in terms of universal design says a lot about us as an institution and who we value in the community and what we value uh, in society. Uh, so, you know, I wish you all could have been um, uh, with us in the break room uh, because we were starting to do what designers always do when we get together. We started telling some of the war stories of some of the crazy things that we have seen. Um, unfortunately, that would be a whole nother show, so we're not going to be able to share that with you today. But Claire, I wanted to follow up. Um, you know, you were you were talking. You know, we were we were all talking about you know how we can make this right. What are some of the good ways that we can start at the beginning? Uh, think about uni- universal design issues. Um, I, my experience has been that sometimes issues related to universal design do not get brought up because there are just people on the team that have never been touched by a particular issue or simply have not had their consciousness raised by a particular issue. And so it, 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 you know, it, it, it gets sidelined until you know, Jan said, oops, we have to do something. I, I'm wondering, Claire... What is your advice to museums who perhaps hire an external designer? I mean, that is becoming more and more common, uh, you know, hiring a uh, either a freelancer or a firm. How, how can the museum make sure, even at the very beginning of that relationship, that the designer is one that... Has breadth of knowledge about these universal design issues, or at least is open to them.
3: Sure. Um, so, as a person, <clears throat> excuse me, who advises students on a regular basis, I am I am always trolling the job listings um, and the various RFPS that are out there, looking for opportunities for students um, once they graduate and. So I read through a lot of um, calls for proposals as well as um, just general job descriptions. So the first thing I would suggest to museums is make sure that um, knowledge of accessible design is a uh, is something that you state in any call for um, a job or for a for a um, contract. Um, I have recently seen a few postings that are that specify accessible graphic design knowledge, or accessible publication design knowledge, um, and accessible accessibility in um, uh, spatial design. But it's not that common. Uh, you tend to see just skill sets listed, and so I think uh, just as in, we need to start the accessible design from the start of a process. We also need to make sure that accessible design or access- knowledge of accessibility is built in to the higher levels of administration so that they recognize that when putting out a job, um, it's included. Um, if, you hire, if you do hire a, an outside firm to come in and design, um, I think it would be useful to make sure that somebody on staff is a liaison with them who has uh, knowledge of the importance and um, feasibility of accessible design. Um, You know, I just think it's not something that we can just let go. I think it's something museums need to recognize is at the front of considering what makes a successful exhibition. Um, And so, as such, we have to put in place all of the um, checks and balances to make sure that... uh, the product actually is designed accessibly. Um, So, yeah, so through hiring practices and also just making sure that there are people bringing that conversation to bear, even if the firm or person who's hired doesn't have that knowledge.
1: And so that leads me uh, to another, uh, to the next, to me the obvious question. And Jan, I'll let you um, answer it. And then uh, Claire, of course, will have a great deal of knowledge since she is at GW. But how do you, how do you learn this stuff? How do, you, how do you know? How do you teach? How do you learn it? Where do you learn it?
2: I think one of the most important things to do is to talk with people with disabilities, a broad range of disabilities and broad ranges within each disability group. People tend to be most sensitive when they have discovered that there are real people behind this, that designers realize that there are people. They are not just, as Claire said earlier, they're not just codes, but this is for people. And So often I have seen designers and many other professionals watch a group of people with disabilities interacting with their product, whether it's, you know, a thing or an environment or an exhibition, and see the problems that people face within them. And you can hear, you can almost hear the wheels going as they think, I've missed that completely. I need to do something to make that better. So I think Intense consultation, frequent consultation with people with disabilities is key to beginning to learn this information. Plus, the U.S. Department of Justice has an extensive ADA technical assistance website. It's ada.gov, and there is a lot of reading material there. Beyond the standards, there are a lot of technical assistance pieces that Make the standards and the regulations understandable and easily applicable to um, exhibition design or graphic design.
1: Those are great resources. Uh, thanks. thanks, Jan. Uh, Claire, how, how do you talk to your students uh, about uh, universal design and, and, and ensure that you know by the time they graduate, they are some of the better informed uh, designers?
3: So, I'm going to echo some of what Jan just said. Um, Being able to talk with and experience a museum exhibition with a person with disabilities uh, or a variety of people with a variety of different disabilities um, is First is going to be your best way of getting insight into this. Yeah. Um, it's you know generating empathy, right? That's the first thing that we need to do as designers is to develop a sense of empathy for the different factors that our audience brings. Um, we. I encourage, and I actually require my students to do visitor tracking, um, which means observation of people within exhibition and museum spaces. Um, I require them to consider a variety of different audience groups. So um, we, you know, and the thing is, what's wonderful about universal design is that we're not only working with people who have disabilities, we're also, or people who are Categorized as having disabilities, we're we're also looking at people who are older, people who are aging, people who have strollers and babies, people who um, uh, you know, people who have different factors that make their mobility or their intellectual uh, processing of the exhibit um, different, and um, so we need to uh, really look at. Um, our audiences carefully and watch how they um, watch how they actually use exhibitions. But then also, not just watch, we have to engage, right? So I have um, our students actually talking with people and going through exhibitions with a variety of different types of people, um, different audience groups. Um, My experience working as an intern with the accessibility program was not only successful because I got to see some of the the behind-the-scenes uh, work on this, but also because I was regularly engaged in groups of stakeholders who had um, disabilities so i my eyes were opened uh, immediately through that process, um, and not just open to the fact that we need to do something but to give me concrete examples of what areas need help um, and what uh, what strategies work better than other strategies. Uh, and I wouldn't have gotten that just by being told, and I wouldn't have gotten that just by reading about it. So actually engaging with people is probably your best, your best strategy. Um, I just want to add one other thing. Um, <clears throat> this idea of considering a museum exhibition as a holistic experience, that, that's another thing that we really emphasize when, uh, when I teach students. Uh, we're not just looking at components. Of course, we have to look specific components, but we also have to consider how they work as a whole experience. So it's not just, does the entrance of an exhibition look inviting? It's, is it inviting, but have the people gone to the bathroom first?
2: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's,
3: it's, what is the whole experience of someone coming into, uh, into a museum or into an exhibition? Um, and, and design, universal design and accessible design are a, a necessity when you consider it in that, in that way.
1: That. Thank you for adding that, Claire. And, and um, I, I'm seeing two important uh, themes. And uh, one uh, themes that that uh, go beyond just even universal design in an accessibility way. But this theme of If we are a museum or a science center or a zoo or an aquarium or anything within our culture, our community, we have to invite those people from our community in. We have to get to know them. Uh, And that is... doesn't matter if there is a segment of the community that are all from a certain country that uh, isn't represented well in the museum, we go out and we engage that group and get to know them. It's, you know, I've, I've seen the accessibility discussion fall apart uh, when it becomes, well, here we are with our exhibition and we're almost ready to build it and now we'll bring in this blue ribbon group of people we have a blind person, we have a deaf person, and we have a person with this disability and that disability. It's sort of a baker's dozen of people that we you know, think we need to pass, review this with, and then we review it. And then everything these people say may be fabulous, but it becomes very confrontational, you know, mm-hmm. because now they're put in a position of having to reflect and respond upon something that will be a problem. Unless they're saying, oh, boy, you did it all perfectly... Mm -hmm. They raise problems, and uh, I I think that 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 is also perhaps something that that, uh, we can all do better on, making sure that we've, before we even put pen to paper or write the outline, that we're engaging with with all of those groups and not just, you know, again, one spokesperson.
2: Right. And I think it's important to remember, too, Carol, that a lot of a lot of people with disabilities didn't start as museum visitors with disabilities but have them now. When Claire talked about older adults, between 2008 and 2012, there were 40 million people age 65 and over, and I'm sure that number is hugely larger now and continuing to grow with the baby boomers. And what we found when I was at the Smithsonian was that the majority of our complaints came in from older adults who were used to being able to use the museum and now couldn't because suddenly the labels were too small or there wasn't enough contrast or they couldn't see their way, they couldn't navigate through a darkened space or they couldn't hear the, the audio that was coming through either as an audio-only program or as a video program with an audio track. And there are a lot of visitors that we have now that if we want to continue to serve them, accessibility will be the way to go, and universal design even more so.
1: It- Thank you, Jan, and it reminds me, too, uh, I was fortunate to have Beth Redmond-Jones on the show uh, about six months ago, and she has done a great deal of work advocating for uh, individuals on the autistic uh, spectrum, and she reminded us that while, you know, the media might focus on autistic uh, children on the autistic um, spectrum, those children are growing into adults, and those adults also uh, uh, are a group that need to be served by our museum so this is another uh, just all part of this broader broth of our community that we need to be um, engaged in we have uh, ladies we have uh, one minute so this is a lightning round one quick final thing that you want to say
2: go ahead claire
3: Okay. Oh, boy. Um, I would just say that um, keep in mind when we want to create successful experiences that we're creating them for everyone. And we need to, in order to do that well, we need to know who everyone is um, and we need to know something about everyone. Um, So do your research when you're doing your design work.
1: Perfect. And Jan, you can have the last word.
2: Last word, there are 56 million Americans who have a disability and um, six I believe, across the world, and they're all visiting our museums now, and if we want to encourage diversity, they come in all ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, gender varieties, and we need to try to find ways to accommodate everyone to the best we can.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you both for doing the work that you do. Uh, I encourage everyone to f- uh, learn more about this issue. We'll actually continue this topic on next week's show, so tune in. And until then, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.